Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Thank you for listening to The History of World War II, Episode 46, A Day in the Life, Germany's Pilots. Few doubt or argue that Hitler was wrong in trying to control Europe through warfare. He exploited the bad economic times of a proud people and promised them greatness. Once in power, he twisted the truth and took control of many aspects of German life. Then, in a series of brilliant diplomatic moves, he brought pride back to Germany in standing up to the dictates of the Versailles Treaty and those countries that wrote it. Poland was invaded, then Denmark and Norway. The German people were not enthusiastic about this latest war because they too remember the horrors of the last one a generation ago. But those individual campaigns ended within weeks. Then the war in the West came and the German people, though fearful, were amazed by the swiftness of their military's success. Hitler waved to the crowds and smiled, but he was as amazed as well. The only ones not stunned were the Panzer generals. The war in Europe was won, but it was not over. Great Britain, despite all the evidence as to why they should make a peace with Nazi Germany, would not give up. They wanted Europe free again. And because they would not come to the negotiating table, Hitler could say to his people that Britain was the warmonger. He was ready to end all conflict. That is, until he was ready to invade the USSR. So the German people more or less believed Hitler and could say to each other, Britain had brought this on themselves. Let's work hard to end this, and so end the war. On the whole, the men in the German military were not much different than the civilians in their thinking and joined up for well-established reasons. Some followed their fathers and grandfathers, some were conscripted, and some, like many in every other country in the world, were looking for a better life, or at least a chance for something different than those that had come before them. Hitler deserves the blame for the war in Europe, and for the shame for what happened. But the pilots of the Luftwaffe were just men caught up in a tidal wave much too big for them to resist. In essence, They were men following orders, proud of their country for picking itself up by its bootstraps, and fighting to defend their homes and family. Most did not, like the civilians back home, know the inner workings or details in Berlin. They were beguiled like so many other Europeans. They also enjoyed the chain of quick victories, and now it was simply Great Britain's turn to realize and accept the greatness of this new Germany. During the Battle of Britain, They followed their leaders and didn't want to let their comrades and friends down. During the battle over the Channel, the German pilots, like the British flyers, rose at dawn and were only released at dusk, unless chosen to fly the night sorties. In between the start and end of their day, they held themselves in a readied state to take to the skies and fight the enemy at a moment's notice. As the battle started out, the fighting was not personal. If anything, 
the British pilots, for the most part, focused their hatred or anger on the German planes. The German pilots saw the duel, for the most part, as a sporting contest that had lethal results. At the beginning, in July, the German pilots stationed in France slept in newly set up tents covered by camouflage netting, but under trees when possible. They kept the same hours the British pilots did and spent their days waiting to be activated by reading, cards, board games, and sleeping. The luckier pilots went off for a day or so, stayed where they were billeted with local families, but they invariably set up their messes or food stations in huts on the airfield or nearby hotels. After an intense day of fighting and likely losing a friend, German fighter pilots like to seek relaxation by heading into the nearest town and going to restaurants, dance places, or cinemas. Not to oversimplify the matter, but the pilots did not have to struggle too hard in finding female company from the locals. France was divided politically. The French army had lost all respect of the people, who themselves had lost all hope, and the German military men were under orders to be on their best behavior, besides having money to spend. Like their RAF counterparts, the Luftwaffe pilots chatted while waiting to be called on, on service-related matters, but also on non-military issues. However, anything unpleasant was joked about, and everyone put on their best face in the beginning. As the battlefront during the war in the West moved apace, the pilots would stay at whatever house was available. They would eat or drink anything they could find, and when not in the sight of a commanding officer, would sometimes head out and look for any form of entertainment. The Luftwaffe personnel, with the ego of a pilot, took their scores very seriously. But due to German flight formations and tactics, the leader of the group flew in the front and always got the best chance to add to his score. One would think this would help the more inexperienced pilots learn for the day when they got their chance, but the reality was, on both sides, that the learning curve was steep and many newbies didn't survive their first few combat experiences. Again, humor was used to deal with this when a newer pilot would get separated after the first pass with an RAF formation. He would call out and let the leader know that he was alone. The group commander or someone would offer up, Don't worry, you won't be alone for long. Here comes the Spitfire. Not exactly helpful. Many Luftwaffe diaries would show later, to the presumed delight of Dowding and Park, that the German pilots mostly felt that there were many more RAF planes fighting against them at one time than could possibly be. The Battle of France, unfortunately for the German pilots, had set the bar for enemy strength and capability very low. That bar would have to be raised when they confronted the RAF, their RDF stations, and the effective response system set up by Dowding. As France was taken out of the war, many German pilots wanted to keep going and just move on to Britain. They assumed it would only be more the same, and to a degree, they would have been right, if they had moved right away. But fighter command in Churchill used the time in between mid-June and mid-August to improve their defense in many aspects. The group of a particular Staffel moved to Calais on July 22, 1940. They were rightfully proud of their accomplishments over France, but missed their lost friends. They probably would have not believed that that pain of loss 
was nothing compared to what was coming. Just like the RAF pilots, as summer came, they had to be ready for combat during the increased daylight hours, which meant 16 to 18 hour days, 16 to 18 hours of more sorties and the chance to lose a friend, or their own lives. And by July 25th, all of that group's equipment was set up. They were ready to begin in earnest, but a new reality had also set in, as they had lost five men that day. One pilot tried to justify the losses due to having to take on not only the British pilots, but many Czechs, Poles, and Frenchmen, and seven Americans. But it only makes sense that those pilots of the vanquished countries would want some sort of revenge, or at least fight with more passion. Another frustrating thing was the weather, but in an unexpected sense. The weather over northern France could be fine, but that was no indication of the weather over the Channel or Britain. It also meant that the weather wouldn't always be clear when they came back. To add to this, when they did return, it was practically on an empty tank, and a recent cloud front added to their stress. At that point, they had the choice of either lowering themselves into the clouds, hoping a runway or flat piece of land was below, or heading further inland and hope the clouds cleared before their fuel ran out. But this was only the beginning of the testing of nerves for German pilots. The first thing to make their stomachs lurch was the crackle of the loudspeakers. Soon the speaker, normally the officer on duty, would clear his throat and then call the men to arms. When this came, the men had to drop everything they were doing and run for their planes. But here is where the normally Teutonic thoroughness worked against the men who risked their lives several times a day. The announcer would depress the radio button and clear his throat. Everyone could not but help tense up at this. It soon became instinctual. But then the anticlimax would come and they would hear, loudspeaker test, report back if understood. This happened several times a day. But when it was real, the call to action meant they rushed to their planes, put on their parachute, grabbed the offered helmet, hoisted themselves into the cockpit, and plugged in their radio and oxygen. The starter whined, smoke and a lick of flame belched from the exhaust, and the aircraft would start to vibrate. The engine roared, the propellers became a blur, and then over the radio, attention, attention, alarm canceled. Everyone would will their bodies and minds to relax once again. Then suddenly, the attack alarm would be called out. It seems a British bomber formation crossed over the channel and was heading their way. But the clouds have come in, and the bombers could only be found in between the cloud layers. So they take off and look around desperately, hoping to save their camp and comrades. Soon, however, the German pilots are told to rush back. The British bombers have somehow passed them by and are flying over their airfield now. The ME-109s return to base, but the attackers are gone. Over the loudspeakers, in the planes, and all around the camp, they hear, the whole group may stand down. As for courage and willingness to give fight, the Germans had found they had met their match, and the Spitfire was close enough to the ME-109 so that the pilot made the difference. The major advantage of the ME was the fuel injection consistency during a dive. But if this advantage was not used, then the pilot's skill and the tactical situation was of paramount importance. Returning to the pilots, 
They were relieved the danger was past, and they would clean up and head into the nearest town to have some fun or de-stress. Their RAF counterparts would have felt right at home with this sentiment. Another belief both groups of pilots shared, and this is probably true worldwide, was a faith in their aircraft and luck. An excerpt from the Battle of Britain by Richard Bickers. The RT, or radio transmission codes, that RAF pilots used to communicate were developed in 1936 as 32 Squadron, stationed at Biggin Hill, and flying gauntlets, carried out exercises with the 1st Embryo Sector Operations Room. Here are some of the codes and their meanings. Scramble meant to take off. Saunter meant minimum cruising speed. Liner meant economical cruising speed. Buster meant maximum cruising speed. Gate meant maximum cruising speed, but limited to five minutes. Vector meant course to steer. Angels meant height in thousands of feet. Orbit meant circle a given point or present position. Pancake, and this is my favorite, meant land, refuel, and rearm. Bogey meant unidentified aircraft. Bandit meant enemy aircraft. And finally, tally-ho, which meant, I am about to attack. But it was also commonly used by pilots to announce that they had sighted the enemy, who still might be many miles away and too far to attack at once. And now, the Battle of Britain. Friday, July 26th, would be dominated by two things outside the opposing pilots' control, the weather and the admiralty. Heavy clouds and rain amounted to low visibility throughout the lower part of Britain. The Admiralty needed a rest, and assuming others did too, would not allow any new shipping to go through the channel for a while. Still, there were ships currently in the channel and the Straits of Dover, and they would be the Luftwaffe's targets today. The normal reconnaissance and meteorological flights took place in the early morning, and in total, Three raids would be made over the far northeast, but only one of them dropped bombs, near Kilmarnock, and probably due to the weather, none of the raiders were intercepted. To the southeast, a single raider, probably hoping to use the weather as well, crossed over the coast at Beachy Head around 6 a.m. It flew inland and was probably surprised it was not engaged. It then bombed Hastings and Mayfield. Five houses were destroyed a few others damaged, and gas and water mains were temporarily unusable. Again, like in the north, this raid was not intercepted. Besides the weather, another reason for the lack of an RAF participation was Dowding's desire to give the pilots and their support teams a breather. No more ships, no more guarding them from the Luftwaffe. Dowding was not forgetting that his focus was on maintaining a defensive air shield not destroying the Luftwaffe. He only had to stay in the fight to not lose it. A resilient fighter command would negate the primary condition for a possible German invasion. Downing had to know this, and as long as he had fighters and bombers, intact airfields, and RDF stations, the Wehrmacht would be committing suicide if they tried to invade. One can easily imagine the RAF fighters and bombers, along with the Royal Navy, inflicting unacceptable losses on any invasion fleet.
Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me, switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't want to do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. The Luftwaffe tried again in the south about 9 a.m. when no less than 21 German aircraft headed for Swanage in the west. British fighters rose up to intercept, but the assault turned back before coming within 10 miles. The same thing happened about 45 minutes later when 601 Squadron was patrolling over White and ran into a group of ME-109s. One ME was hit, but one hurricane was lost, along with its pilot, Chalinor Lindsay. Another pilot, Flight Officer J.H. Riddle's hurricane, took severe damage. However, he was able to land his badly vibrating plane safely. This was Gehring's plan, when it worked. A contest of opposing fighters, with the British coming out on the losing end. It hadn't happened often so far, but Gehring had the numbers on his side and they tried again to the southeast. Whether with the threat of bombers or by attacking British naval units, they would flush out RAF fighters. Off offwardness, a naval unit was bombed, damage was inflicted, and the RAF responded. There were no victories on either side, but any damage inflicted that could be flew away from was seen as a German victory. The same thing would be tried four times that day, near the Yarmouth-Cromer area, but either the attackers did not like the tactical situation or just wanted to confuse their enemy, and each time they turned around before they were engaged. Around noon that day, 20-plus German aircraft approached Portland, but when 238 Squadron lifted off to give battle, the attackers turned around, but not in enough time, as one of the 109s was shot down. The worsening weather, especially in the Channel, now hampered flying. The Luftflots waited it out, but then tried to use the clouds and rain to approach the southern coast again. Around 3.30 that afternoon, 50-plus German aircraft approached the Isle of Wight and three fighter squadrons were activated to meet them. But before they could get in close, the Germans turned around and headed back for northern France. That is, except for a few planes, hoping they could sneak in unnoticed. But the attempt didn't fool the RDF stations. The RAF fighters chased the invaders back to Dover and shot down a 109. To the west, near Swansea, in the Bristol Channel, a patrol from 92 Squadron came across two separate small raids of Junkers 88s around 5 o'clock that afternoon. Patrols were a mixed blessing for the RAF. They couldn't afford to have aircraft in enough strength everywhere, but this time it worked out. One 88 got away, but the second was severely damaged. However, no one saw it go down. The clouds and rain prevented confirmation either way. However, the biggest threat to not materialize was just before 7 p.m. that evening. A force of at least 24 aircraft were plotted forming up over the Cherbourg area. It approached over, but then turned west toward Portland. As it turned, it also broke up into separate raids and Fighter Command feared that in the coming chaos, someone would get through. 
The shipping below was warned to prepare itself. The RDF could tell that the attackers were coming along a 10-mile front and in layers, but of course, they could not tell what they would do next. So numerous squadrons were activated. The raiders then broke into smaller formations, causing more panic, but simultaneously they turned around and headed back to Cherbourg. The RAF squadrons tried to catch them up and engage them, but the head start they had, combined with the weather, allowed the Luftwaffe to escape unharmed. The civilian casualties that day were slight, but the RAF also lost a few planes that day, not in combat, but when they tried to land on the worsening airstrips due to the rain. One plane landed and then went nose first into the mud. Fortunately for that squadron, it was repairable and the pilot was unharmed. There was activity at sea as well, beyond the convoys. About 50 miles southwest of Stavanger, Norway, the British submarine HMS Thames snuck up and fired a torpedo at the German battleship Gneisenau. However, the fish, or torpedo, hit one of the screening vessels, Luke, and it sinks quickly. But HMS Thames never makes contact with anyone again, and it is never found or recovered. Also, just after 3 o'clock that afternoon, about 320 miles west of Ireland, German U-boat 34 fired three torpedoes at convoy OB-188. The British passenger ship Accra was hit and sunk. It had been carrying 1,700 tons of general cargo, but it was all lost, along with 24 of its crew or passengers. 465 passengers from the ship were rescued by others in the convoy and eventually taken to Liverpool. The following day, the convoy was attacked again and another British ship was hit and sunk, but all 32 members of its crew were safely picked up. At least two more ships would be sunk, before the convoy made it to Liverpool. Mindful that Adler Tog was coming, the pressure was kept on the British that night. Around 9.30 p.m., a single aircraft was plotted south of Dunkirk. It was monitored as it crossed the channel and dropped bombs in Kent and Essex. But when it headed out to sea again, it suddenly vanished from the RDF screen. It was presumed lost, and no one could figure out why it went down. Another raider was plotted about an hour later, northeast of Haysboro, but it never crossed the coast and was assumed to be a meteorological flight or a fighter hoping to make contact with a British bomber. British intelligence reports were coming in describing the frustration the German military was experiencing with British night bombers, disrupting their barges, airfields in northern France, and their general sense of invincibility. The rest of the night, was spent by the Luftwaffe covering large areas of Great Britain with the usual mine laying and ineffective night bombing. Mines were laid in the Thames estuary off the Norfolk coast and the Bristol area. Bombs were dropped, but apparently with little damage or loss of life from Aberdeen to Portland, from Bristol to the southeast coast. As each side lost two aircraft that day, the total recorded losses so far were 59 for the RAF and 100 for the Luftwaffe. Dowling spent that evening and night moving around more squadrons, but not simply just further south. He was covering the area's hardest hit and strengthening the newly organized 10 group on 11 group's right flank. He knew it would have been too much for Park to simply enlarge 11 group's patrolling area, 
This move would pay off handsomely in the coming months. Saturday, July 27th, would bring clouds to the Channel, a slight rain to the Midlands and over the North Sea, and fair skies in the Dover Straits. Dover would suffer for this. Still in an exploring mode, the Luftwaffe was still gaining the measure of the RAF, their planes and pilots, and their support staff. And Dowling was still focused on the big picture of husbanding his forces for the actual invasion. It was not his intention to send up a squadron every time a single German aircraft was plotted. But he did not control fighter command in minute detail. There were those above and below him making decisions as well. In fact, the Air Ministry wanted larger numbers of planes sent up, preferably larger formations than what was coming in, to deal with the invaders attacking. This forced Dowding to increase the number of existing squadrons with newly trained pilots. It was said Dowding controlled the fight day to day, and Vice Air Marshal Keith Park, hour by hour. The Germans would alter their tactics for the day, again in hope of catching outnumbered RAF fighters, but their main focus would be on any shipping they came upon. For the German High Command, the invasion would be carried out, if need be. Better to starve Britain into some kind of agreement. The German generals and admirals argued back and forth over the amount of men and equipment to cross and where they should land, but in the end, the pressure was put on Hitler and Goering. Goering promised to clear the skies of the RAF, and Hitler saved for himself the sole right to decide if and when the invasion would take place. This left the two battling sides, the German generals and admirals, to argue in an almost dreamlike world. The far north would see five separate raids of a single bomb each, hitting such areas as Eli, King Lassie, and North Berwick. And although each raider would make it back home safely, damage was minimal. To the south, the convoys again drew the attention of the Luftwaffe, but the Germans would also attack the naval escorts along with the ships carrying supplies. There would be five raids in the area, but each time the attackers were beaten off or turned around if the defenders' numbers were comparable. However, one raid continued on past the coast, and again, hoping to use the element of surprise, went after a convoy near Swanage in the Bristol Channel. But squadrons 145 and 238 responded, and shot down one ME-109 and one Junkers 87. However, a Spitfire was lost during this engagement. The rest of the raiders turned around and headed for home. To the southwest, 234 Squadron hit a Junkers 88, but a kill could not be confirmed. But the real clashes and subsequent British losses took place to the east. The first eastern raid of the day was aimed at a convoy off Lowstoff about 9.30 that morning. There was no significant damage to the ships below, but the raider got away. However, the Luftwaffe would be back, in all six times over the east coast, and inflict serious damage to nearby shipping. About 2.30 that afternoon, 10 ME-109s that had been patrolling over Calais turned sharply and headed for Dover. RAF squadrons were activated, but still the raiders managed to bomb the dock facilities at Dover. The dock would be attacked again this day, and the destroyer HMS Codrington, in dock for boiler cleaning, would be sunk, and three naval personnel would be wounded. The RAF fighters did not stop the damage, but they did manage to chase the raiders back to France. 
However, they never got the opportunity to engage. Around 4 p.m., the Luftwaffe tried to keep Fighter Command guessing by having a raid of at least six aircraft head toward Dover, but then turn west and attack a steamer which suffered some damage, but was not sunk. Back at Dover, three squadrons were sent up to patrol and ran into another raid about 5.30 p.m. Hits were scored on both sides. One Heinkel bomber was severely damaged and probably didn't make it home, but one hurricane from 501 Squadron definitely did not return to its airfield. But the Luftwaffe's best results of that day came around 5 p.m. off the east coast. Fifteen dive bombers started out near Calais, but made a feint at Dover, but then turned to go after some trawlers and escorting destroyers. Destroyer HMS Wren had some near misses and thought it had escaped the worst of it, but the bombs had come close enough to puncture the hole below the waterline, and the ship went down. Thirty-seven crew were lost. Another, HMS Montrose, suffered damage to its hull as well. Her bow was destroyed, and it ended up being towed to Harridge. The raiders, content with their work, headed for home. Fighter Command somehow lost them on the RDF and was unable to send any pursuit. That night had the usual mine laying and target hunting to the south and west. Fighters were sent up, but as usual, no contact could be established. From about 11.30 to 1.30 the next morning, mine laying was carried out in between the Firth of Tay and Kinnear's Head. The night's activities ended with the bombers returning to Swanage, hitting the area and disrupting a railway line. Losses for the day were one for the RAF and four for the Luftwaffe. Total recorded losses to date, 60 and 104, respectively. By Sunday, July 28th, Garing's optimistic attitude about humbling Britain seemed to be coming to fruition, and even though it would be no lightning campaign like every invasion since Poland, it seemed to be moving in that direction. By now, the Dover Straits were being called Hellfire Corner due to the convoy ships lost in the channel to the big German guns on the coast, not because of the more numerous German planes lost over the channel. So the Germans were losing too many planes, but the British were losing too many supply ships. If this continued, the British would have to yield before the Germans did. It was that simple. In fact, convoys were already stopped in the channel, and soon all daylight shipping would be prohibited as well. For now, the daytime channel belonged to the Germans. Of course, this meant very little and helped the suffering German pilots none at all. But still, they went on with their sorties. The weather was not perfect, but clear enough for each side not to use it as an excuse for what was coming. The far north saw a few raiders plotted, but there were no engagements by the defenders. To the west and south, potential raiders were chased, but again, no engagements occurred. They appeared and then disappeared from the RDF screen, but it all came to nothing. Four minutes after noon, a large number of aircraft gathered over Calais above the powerful German artillery pieces and then headed towards Dover. However, at about the halfway point, they turned around and headed back to France and dispersed as they got closer to their respective airfields. It seemed that today's large raid was only a feint and was not to be. However, at 1.35 that afternoon, five Luftwaffe raids gathered, numbering about 100 aircraft all told, and headed for Dover again. 
This large formation contained fighters and bombers of equal numbers. This time, they would not turn back. Four squadrons, 74, 41, 11, and 257, two of hurricanes and two of spitfires, rose to contest the air over Dover. The leader of the raiders was flying ace Major Werner Mulders, the new commander of JG-51. He would be the first pilot on either side to score 100 victories. He rewrote the tactics used by the Luftwaffe during his time in the Condor Legion during the Spanish Civil War. He was shot down during the War of France and captured, but after the armistice, was returned to the Luftwaffe. This was his first flight in two months. But what the RAF did not know was that Mulders had a chance to fly a captured Hurricane and Spitfire. He knew the enemy's machines very well, and he would use that knowledge this afternoon. Today, his job was to take his Geschwalder and guard the bombers, which were hoping to finish off the convoys below. He quickly zeroed in on an RAF fighter and shot him out of the sky. He next focused on Flight Officer Lovell and his Spitfire and scored a hit. About to finish him off, he forgot to keep an eye out and was himself hit by Flight Lieutenant John Webster of 41 Squadron. Molders broke off and headed for home. Besides damage to his plane, he was shot in the leg three times and would need a month to recover before he could fly again. The RAF gave him a proper welcome back to the war. German tactics being what they were, the group leaders gathered a total of five more victories to their tallies. But the RAF took out 15 aircraft that day in this massive dogfight. The remaining ships were safe, though some suffered damage. But again, due to fuel, the raiders soon had to head for home. That night, 150 flights were plotted practically all over the British Isles. Mines were being laid along the east and south coast, as well as the Bristol Channel. Bombs were dropped in numerous locations, but damage was slight. What there was of it included a searchlight post and gas and water mains. Aria fighters were sent up, but no contacts were made. One raider crashed near Newbury, but for some unknown reason, the pilots who bailed out were never found. As a taste of what was coming, some aerodromes or airfields were successfully hit that night. They were quickly repaired, but later, when they would be specifically targeted, the damage and the time it took to repair them would be much greater. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are in your neighborhood, ready to help personalize your insurance. And you can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. Visit statefarm.com today to get a great rate without sacrificing great service. That's statefarm.com. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. In events we will cover in detail soon, the numerous German U-boats were busy helping the Luftwaffe attempt to strangle the British into submission. At least in this regard, the arrogant Luftwaffe and the conservative Navy could agree. Early in the morning of July 29th, about 80 miles west of Ireland, U-boat 99 sunk the British MV Auckland Star that was carrying almost 11,000 tons of general cargo from Australia to Britain via the Panama Canal. All 74 members of the crew escaped into lifeboats and reached the Irish shore. Still, between events like this and Hellfire Corner, 
which was quickly becoming a graveyard of many convoy ships. The noose was tightening around the single enemy of Nazi Germany. Meanwhile, off the island of Trinidad, German and British armed merchant cruisers exchanged fire. The HMS Alcantara took three hits. The German vessel Thor, proud of her victory, turned away. It was then that the Alcantara got off several shots and made two hits. Both ships limped away, would be repaired, and lived to fight another day. However, a few crew members from each ship did not. Next time, we'll see cross-purposes arise on the two sides of the channel. Hitler informs Goering to be ready to launch the main assault with only 12 hours' notice. Goering politely asks for a longer notice. Meanwhile, convoys are suspended in the channel for the next few days to allow the pilots and their support crews rest. So, Gehring needs to substantially but quickly finish off the RAF fighters, and Downing will refuse to send them up. German flying ace Major Mulders is out of action, and his rival for the highest score, Major Adolf Galland, is frustrated beyond belief at Fighter Command's unwillingness to give battle. Greetings from Central Virginia. So I wanted to take a moment and thank everyone who's um, ordered CDs so far. I really do appreciate it. Uh, In particular, I'd like to thank Kenneth W. for getting a set for his dad, Bob, and for Dan for getting uh, a set for his father, Terry, on his 72nd birthday. So again, I really do appreciate it, guys, and it helps with all the books that I'm getting and need to get in the future. Uh, As far as donations, I would like to thank Evan S. of Bel Air, Maryland, Robert P. from Bray, California, David B. from Essex, UK, Andrew C. from Cheshire, UK, hope I'm saying that right, sorry, James A. from Dorset, UK, and Chris F. from Victoria, Australia, and Joseph P. from Illinois. Um, I'd like to also mention um, John S. from UK, who donated last time, and I forgot his name. And I felt really bad, not only for forgetting his name, but he also told me a great story about his grandfather during D-Day. And I just wanted to share it with you real quick. So his grandfather, who unfortunately passed away two years ago, was in on the landings at D-Day. And his landing craft had taken some damage, but they made it up to the beach. The door opens. And, of course, as you saw in the movies and probably read, a lot of the men were hit right away with bullets, artillery pieces, that kind of thing. But his grandfather's best friend, whose nickname was Taffy, was hit as well. So instead of just leaving them there, he grabs him, swims back to the ship, and, and unloads them on the ship that they came from. And they said, yeah, we'll take him. We'll take care of him. And it turns out Taffy's going to be okay. But then they ask his grandfather, are, are you hit? Do you need assistance? Are you okay? He says, no, I'm fine. So they say, okay, off you go. So he has to swim back to shore with all of his gear and find his men and, and join the fighting. And he did, and he lived to tell the tale. So again, these are, this is just an example of a lot of the different stories that people share with me. And again, I just want to say thank you. It means so much to me and it gives a whole other uh, level of understanding to the war. And I also wanted to make sure you got to check out the interview that I did with Paranormal A Radio. Uh, you can either find it on my website or you can go to iTunes and search Terry Koenig or uh, Paranormal A Radio and see it. We talked about Hitler and a lot and him learning um, 
the ESS and a lot of things like that. I think you'll find it pretty interesting. Um, in fact, they want me to come back in June. So sometime in June, and I'll let you know as we get closer, we're going to be talking about Hitler and Mein Kampf, the book, and the predictions that he made and all the, the plans that he had, and I'm sure some other things as well. So I'll let you know as that, as that gets closer. And lastly, before I let you go, I wanted to, again, thank everyone who's written in about the tour and signed up. And just know that for those 10 days, I will be at your uh, beck and call. We can talk about World War II all you want. I'm really looking forward to it. And for those of you who said uh, that you weren't going on this time, uh, maybe in the future, uh, you can still certainly swing by at one of the places that will be and say hi. That would, that would really mean a lot to me. So I hope to see many more of you besides the ones who are signing up for the tour. So I was doing some research for an episode coming up on Ultra and breaking the Enigma codes, and um, I really got into it, and I can't wait to go to Bletchley Park, one of the places that we'll be going first, where the uh, the British government had their government code in cipher school, where they basically took what um, some of the poles gave them before uh, they were conquered, and they built on that, and they were able to build the machines um, to break their code pretty early on in the war. So as many of you know, I'm sure, um, the Poles give the British and the French all the knowledge and equipment they have, and they use it. And uh, Alan Turning and Gordon Welchman are at Bletchley Park, and they're put in charge, and they are able to create the machines to read the German codes. And so I'm really looking forward to checking out the park. And afterwards, if anybody wants to help me search for Alan Turning's map, supposedly somewhere in the park where he hid all his silver, you know, we can find it together and split it. That's fine with me. But seriously, I can't wait to check out all the Enigma machines they have there. They have the ones that the German Secret Service use. They have the ones that the Army and the Air Force use. They even have one that was used by Mussolini for a while. And the information that they gathered was codenamed Ultra. We'll go into all that later on a different podcast. And what's really neat is they had to be careful how they used the information because if they used it effectively all the time, then the Germans would figure out that they were onto them and change everything because even a slight change would put uh, the people at Bletchley Park behind in months and weeks because they would have to figure out what changes the Germans made. Uh, but still, a lot of people say that it shortened the war from anywhere from two to four years, which is pretty scary if you think about it. But Ultra really made a difference in the war in North Africa against Rommel. In fact, uh, General Sir Claude Auchinleck said that if it wasn't for Ultra, uh, Rommel probably would have made it to Cairo. So then the U.S. joins the war, and Churchill and Roosevelt decide to pull their resources, so, so some Americans were sent over. Um, but from the beginning of the war, uh, the Britons knew what they needed, and so they hired people who were linguists, chess champions, and crossword experts, um, mathematicians, and things like that. In fact, some of them people called it the Golf, Cheese, and Chess Society, as opposed to <laughs> its proper name. But one of the things I hope to walk away with um, from this experience, especially being an American, is the the British sense of um, this is totally terrifying, but let's just stick together, stay calm, and work on this, and we can come through. And they had signs like, do not talk at meals, do not talk in the transport, do not talk traveling, do not talk in the billet, do not talk in, at your own fireside. And so they all really focused and did what they had to do. Um, and th this place employed thousands of people, and 80% of the civilians were women. But they all did. They all came together and did what they had to do. And it was just amazing how they stayed calm. And I would really like to just be able to get a sense of, to be able to appreciate that something totally terrifying is coming your way, 
and you just stick to your work. You're part of the team and you try to make it happen. And even though we're going to Churchill's birthplace uh, there at Bletchley Park, they have a pretty impressive Churchill collection I saw from their website. And they have the different huts that were responsible for different things. Like one hut would break down the uh, transmissions and the other one would translate the transmissions. And the two huts didn't know what the other one used. So they even broke it down on that kind of level just for security reasons. And what's also amazing is at its height, they were reading about 4,000 messages a day, which just, you know, it's an incredible amount of work. But what I find most impressive of all is even after the war, a lot of the people that worked there just refused to talk about it. In fact, it wasn't until like, um, I think a book came out in 1974 about the place that people even considered it safe to acknowledge what they did in any capacity. And again, it was just that kind of professionalism that uh, saw them through. It was simply amazing. So uh, enough of that. Sorry, I'm just really excited to go. If you have any questions about the tour, you can certainly send an email. You can either send it to me, uh, ray42harris at yahoo.com, or you can send it to info at historyworldtravel.com. Uh, if you send it to me, I'll try to answer it. If not, I'll just send it on to them. Um, they're very helpful, and they're, they're very excited about this uh, as much as I am. And I'll just end this on a personal note. Um, for the citizens of the UK who go on the tour, you can just help me to walk on the right side of the street or not in the wrong lane and get hit by a car. My wife would really appreciate me coming back. Thank you. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the... The weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.